Good morning, church. Good morning. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Father, I'm already thankful for your people, so thankful to gather in your name, so thankful to take truth upon our lips and song, to meditate on the fighter verse that we did. Lord, I feel like you've already primed our hearts for this moment, this sacred moment where your word is expounded, your word is explained, and I pray that it would be done so in the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I throw myself upon you and ask for your help because, Lord, the last thing we need is more people doing more things in the flesh. So we pray for your spirit. We ask for you to do that in me. Lord, work powerfully through me by your spirit and work powerfully in the hearts of all your people, Lord, because we deeply need the expectations that this text brings to be etched on our minds and on our hearts. So, Lord, do what you love to do. Show your word to be all-sufficient in our lives. And let us trust it and cling to it more than we trust our own eyes. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, some of you uh, will remember from last week, we covered the first 53 verses of Acts chapter 7. And even if you weren't there and maybe you're visiting today, I'll give you a little help by just saying, Stephen preached a sermon, and in that sermon that he preached, he gave a very focused survey of Israel's history, and then he drew a very pointed conclusion in light of that history. And basically, you could summarize it something like this, that Stephen told them, speaking to that council of religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, with the high priest at the head, he basically said, the main problem is that you are no different than your fathers before you. The main problem is that your hearts are every bit as hard as your fathers were. And we see that because just as they rejected the prophets who spoke about the coming of the righteous one, you have rejected the righteous one himself when he came. That's the essence of it. Or just to hear Stephen's Words in his own conclusion in Acts chapter 7 verses 51 to 53, he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. How do you think they responded to this sermon? I mean, did you like the sermon? <laughs> that kind of question seems very shallow compared to what we're talking about right here. Like, what did you think, guys? Well, we're not left guessing for very long, are we? Verse 54, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they groaned. You've done that before. They've ground their teeth at him, at Stephen. They were inflamed with anger, and they ground their teeth at him. Now, they're angry. I mean, they're really mad right here. But I need to tell you, it's going to get worse. 
their anger is going to intensify. Their anger is going to escalate as we walk through this passage. And one of the big reasons it's going to escalate is because of what Stephen sees. And it's important to say what Stephen says, because he's going to describe what he sees out loud. And that is uh, not going to go well for him on one level. Um, and so listen to what Stephen sees and what Stephen says. This is very important because it's going to escalate things. Starting in verse 55, going through verse 56. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, there's a parallel there in those two verses that we're meant to hear very clearly. He sees, right, the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And Stephen is intentionally identifying Jesus with the Son of Man. And that phrase, Son of Man, is pregnant with Old Testament meaning, meaning that everybody on that council would have been intimately familiar with. They knew that he was quoting from Daniel chapter 7. They knew that they were, that he was describing the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7 and applying it to Jesus Christ. And I'm not, I'm sure some of us are familiar with Daniel 7, but even if we're not, let me just read the relevant, really relevant portion. Daniel 7 verses 13 and 14. Listen close. It says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. In other words, that picture of that king getting the entire kingdom, having all this dominion over all these people He's saying, that's my Jesus. He's the son of man. And how do they, how do the high priest and company respond to what he sees and to what he says here? Verse 57. But they cried out with a loud voice. Like Stephen's probably got more to say, but they just drowned him out right here. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears, unwittingly fulfilling the point of Stephen's sermon when he says you're uncircumcised in heart and ears. You do not want to hear what God has to say about Jesus, right? And then it says, they rush together at him. Now, that's going to lead next to verse 58. Then they cast him out of the city. You imagine this, you know, I mean, just kind of picture that scene. I mean, they are just enraged right now. I mean, it has escalated intensely. They're shouting him down. They're plugging their ears. They're rushing at him. Now you could see them grab him and forcefully start working him out of the city. I mean, you can see him pushing, shoving. 
knocking him off balance, picking him up again, dragging him, getting him out of the city where they are going to stone him. That's what they thought of Stephen's sermon and this additional insight that he just shared with them. But you can't help and want to think about Stephen's trial and how they are responding to his witness and not have a flashback of Jesus's trial. Remember when Jesus was on trial? This same kind of thing came up, only it wasn't, it wasn't like he was pointing at someone else saying, yeah, he's the son of man. Jesus is saying, yeah, I'm the son of man. Listen to this. This is Matthew 26, 62 and following. It says, and the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. That's his way of saying yes, in a veiled way. But in case we're confused at all, he puts the confusion out of our heads when he says, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Is that enough of an answer for you? And again, same case with Stevens. They knew exactly what that meant, only he's applying it to himself. And you could see from their response just how much they saw in that phrase, son of man. This is how they responded. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. That's the response to Jesus, the Son of Man. This is the response in our text to one who's bearing witness to Jesus, the Son of Man. So we go back to Stephen. We think about how things unfolded, how their anger escalated to full-out violence, and now they are poised to stone him. And so we just read in verse 58, then they cast him out of the city, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now that's just like a little narrator hint there. We're going to come back to this, right? This young man named Saul, but huh, garments being laid at his feet. Okay, interesting point, leaving it for now and moving on. And then we see Stephen He's going to utter some things in these last few minutes of his life that are incredible, really. Verse 59, and as they were stoning him, so as he's getting hit with medium stones, large stones at high velocity, wincing in pain, Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord Jesus, Lord, the one whom I've submitted to, the one whom I've seen to be the Messiah. I, my hope is in you. I know I'm going to die in a moment. Receive my spirit. Welcome me. And then in verse 60, and you can see him get hit with another big stone. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And you could see him take one more stone to the temple 
And then it says, And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, as they, the council, was doing exactly what their fathers had done, Stephen is there doing exactly what his Lord Jesus did. And he fell asleep, which is a uniquely Christian phrase to describe how Christians feel about the resurrection hope that they die in. Sleep is, a, it's, it's another way of saying that they died, but for Christians, we know that as we believe in Jesus, though we die, yet we shall live. And so our spirits go immediately into his presence. Our bodies are awaiting a future resurrection, but we are immediately spiritually in the presence of the Lord. Stephen died in that hope, and his sleep was sweet. And so this is a very gruesome scene, and yet it's a glorious scene. And it's hard to fully sort that out um, in our own hearts as we witness it. You could see in Jesus in Stephen's two sayings there, his prayers um, in those last moments, the one standing up and then the one from his knees, we hear Stephen's heart for sinners echo Christ's heart for sinners from the cross. We hear Stephen's prayer to receive his spirit echo Jesus's prayer for the Father, Father to receive his spirit from the cross. And so again, you see this scene unfold and you can't help but have a flashback to Jesus's death. When the similar things were uttered, for example, in Luke 23, verse 46, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Or that scene in the crucifixion where he has criminals on both sides of him. And then he says this, Father, forgive them. Not just speaking about criminals, but he's speaking about all the people still actively mocking him and adding more pain to his life. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do as they go on casting lots for his clothes. As we kind of compare and set those two things side by side, Stephen's death and his prayers and Jesus' death and his prayers, we can't help but realize that the darkest moment for Christ turned into the brightest hope for sinners. Jesus endured the darkest hour so that Stephen could endure his with hope. What Jesus went through in his hour was different than what Stephen went through in his hour. When Jesus was going through his hour, he had a dark cloud over his head. There was not a lot of clear sight at that moment. He was being absorbed into the wrath of God at that moment, experiencing all the punishment that we deserve in that moment. It didn't feel hopeful, in a sense, you could say, for Jesus at that time. But that's part of the glory of this scene that we're seeing here in Acts, is that Jesus endured that so that Stephen could endure that. Stephen could stand there 
in the most excruciating moment, enduring a gruesome death. And he could do it beholding Jesus in his glory with full hope in that moment. It's truly stunning that Jesus absorbed the wrath of God and endured that darkness so that we could look forward to our welcome. The Stephen was actually looking forward to something in that moment, and rightly so. You know, there's a detail in our text that's mentioned twice that I kind of, that leaves me scratching my head a little bit. You know, I thought when Jesus died and he rose from the grave and he ascended to the right hand of the Father, he sat, Son of Man, standing at the right hand of God. And when you put that together with Stephen's prayer to receive his spirit, I can't help but come to the conclusion that Jesus is standing as a welcome for Stephen in that moment. He's welcoming Stephen home. (laughs) It's really a powerful thought to think about this welcome and how it would banish, him standing in that moment would banish any doubt that Stephen would have in that moment of death. Stephen got a merciful foretaste of the glory of the Son of Man in the moment that he needed it the most. This is what all of those who are in Christ get to look forward to. We get to look forward to confidently that welcome. And the more we grab onto that hope, the more peaceful, in a sense, we're going to be able to fall asleep. And that welcome, it's not hard to imagine. You know, you think about like a wedding ceremony. Guest of honor stands up, right? Pastor says, please stand as the bride comes forth, right? Stephen, as part of this bride, is coming forth to Jesus. Jesus stands, and it's not hard to imagine all of heaven standing with him to honor this reception, this welcome. Everybody in that group wanted to get Stephen out of their life. But the one that matters stood for him to welcome him. What a way to go. And I think there's great instruction for here for us in the death of saints. My prayer for all of us is that we will hear words like this and it would go a long way in preparing us for our own hour of death. And that we would face it like Stephen did with a profound resurrection hope and that we can be grateful, even on our deathbed, that that doesn't have to be the darkest hour because the darkest hour has already been endured by Jesus Christ. Now, I have to tell you, the violence doesn't stop there. The violence doesn't stop with Stephen's death. In fact, this church in Jerusalem, this church that, as we've read through the first seven chapters of Acts, that has been growing Day by day, flourishing in unity, overcoming obstacles, right? They're doing so well. What a beautiful place to go to church, right? And people to be around. But this church in Jerusalem is going to get rocked. It's going to experience a rude awakening. The violence is going to continue. And we see that as we pick up in chapter 8. And it says... And Saul approved of his execution. So we get the second mention of Saul. Another just subtle mention in here. We learn a little bit more about him, that this man at whose feet the garments were laid 
was not some innocent bystander. Like, hey man, can you watch over these garments? He was, he was involved. He was approving of what has happened. He is complicit with that wicked act that just took place. And as we keep reading, we're going to fill out, find out that that's probably an understatement. This church in Jerusalem is going to get rocked. Look here um, at second part of verse 1. And there arose on that day, the day that Stephen was stoned, like, you know, a fuse being lit, all of a sudden, boom, an explosion. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, I picture this, that, you know, really safe, you know, community that they've been able to just enjoy and meet and gather, generally speaking, peacefully for these months gone by. People growing, people maturing, enjoying the fellowship, the camaraderie, the safety, the unity, the strength that's growing in the church all the time. It reminds me, it makes me think of like, you know, a nest up in a tall tree, right? Nestled up there. These baby birds, they're growing now, right? They've just been enjoying the safety of that nest, having all the provision that they need. And all of a sudden, something just comes and nails that tree. They get knocked out of the nest and they fall to the ground. And you've seen baby birds. Like when they're others like, oh, whoa, whoa. You know, like everything's brand new. Like it's a new world. That's what's happening to this infant church in Jerusalem. They are being sent into a new world. All they've known is the safety of Jerusalem and being part of that community. But as it says, when this um, hit came to the church, this persecution arose, they were all scattered. They were scattered. And you might hear that when you, what do you hear when you hear these words? They were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Does that remind you of something in Acts? Acts 1.8, the mission statement, the, the, the purpose statement in the book of Acts. And you will be my witness, the, the resurrected and ascended Lord said, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. This is a major shift in the book of Acts right now. We are moving from these first seven chapters where we were in Jerusalem, and now we're moving to these other regions and to show that the mission is being accomplished. The mission is being carried out. And then there's this quick aside Devout men, verse 2, buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Not exactly a great time to be associated with Stephen. But at risk to themselves, they were devout men. They were godly men and they knew what was righteous and what was just. And it's just moving to me that like those who took and cared for Jesus' body, that these brothers, these godly men, took and cared for Stephen's body. They wanted to give it a proper burial, right? And they lamented while others were rejoicing because they're wicked. These righteous and godly men were rightly lamenting, recognizing that this was a righteous man who died. And his care, their care for Stephen's body stands in stark contrast with Saul. Verse 3, But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So in this short verses that we've looked at, 
Saul is mentioned three times. Okay, the first mentions of him, and there's three mentions in a short amount of time. And what we learn here is that Saul is ravaging the church. This is really important to linger here for a moment. Saul is going to become the main character in the second, in the book, the second half of the book of Acts. And his name is going to be Paul, right? So this is going to become the main character, and we're being introduced to him here. Like, we need to know this about him. We need to know that it was at his feet that these garments were laid down. We need to know that he looked approvingly at that gruesome murder of Stephen. And we need to know that he had an appetite, a zeal, misguided, no, but intense, a zeal to persecute the church of Jesus Christ. He just even that word is so strong. He was ravaging the church, entering house after house. Saul viewed Jesus as a false Messiah. And all those who followed him, he viewed as heretics, right? And so he was hell-bent on destroying the entire church, men and women. And his zeal, his zeal was so intense that he didn't just say, I'm just going to kind of wait in the public places And, you know, if someone says something, then I'm going to jump all over that. No, he goes into their private dwellings. He goes to their homes. I mean, you got to imagine him knocking on doors, knocking doors down with people that are with him, grabbing a woman by the hair, dragging her out of the house. This was merciless. This was savage. He's bringing people out. You connect it with other verses in the New Testament. He's dragging people away, seeing that they're in prison. Later on, he himself admits that when he had opportunity, when they were on trial, to cast his vote to see them put to death, he did it. Virtually at every chance he had. Pause here. He's going into homes. He's taking men and women out of these homes. He's taking, dragging moms and dads out of their homes. Like we, we're, a lot of us know the rest of Saul's story and it's really easy to go, yeah, I mean, so he persecuted the church. There's orphans in Jerusalem because Saul existed. Like children lost their parents because of him. They were put to death because of him. They were traumatized because of him. And he didn't stop there. He was hunting people to other towns and cities. I mean, people were terrified of him. People's entire lives were upended. They lost their livelihood. When you see this happening to someone, would you hire them? People lost their jobs. You know, entire family structures got unraveled in these moments. You know, you're going to feed this orphan kid of heretics? I mean, this is, this is terrible what Paul brought, what Saul brought into the world. He, when he ravaged the church. Some people lost everything. And I want to pause here and I want to make an application that I, want, I was planning to make on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, but I feel like it's most fitting just to make it right here, right now. Because I think Saul's story has so much to teach us. When you look at what he did, even in these few verses, these, this brief introduction to Saul, what do you see? Right? Right? You see a foreshadowing of things, how important it's going to be. But what you see is you see a man who was part of this gruesome death that set this whole thing, this whole storm 
you know, going. Um, so he's there. The garments are at his feet. He's complicit in what happened to Stephen. Every drop of blood that fell. It's a judgment on his head. He not only was just there, he looked approvingly of it. His heart was around it. It's what he wanted to happen. And as if that wasn't enough, he's just blood hungry, he goes and ravages the church and he just takes it. Like no one was expecting this of him. But as to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. He had an unmatched zeal in that day. He was spearheading this persecution of the church. This is who he was. What a powerful destruction of human life. How much blood was on Saul's hands? I mean, an incredible amount of blood was on his hands. I want to ask the question, how does this guy live with himself? How does he wake up in the morning? How does he look at himself in the mirror? I mean, look what he's done to people's lives. I mean, even if he came to his senses a little bit and realized that some of what he was doing was kind of wrong, like how to face up to all of that. We're probably only scratching the surface and not even grasping the full depths of the destruction that he brought. And it, I think there's parallel to other ways that people destroy human life and treat it like it's not valuable. I think there's a powerful application here to the entire system of abortion in our country that has left over 62 million babies lifeless. It's horrible. Ravaging, ravaging these little lives that were in the safest place in the world as little inhabitants of their mother's womb, only to be ejected from there in some of the most grotesque ways that made Stephen's death look more humane. There's a lot of people that are involved when something like that happens, when an abortion happens, for example. There's people that give the counsel to happen. There's people that give the ride. There's people that give the money. There's people that use their influence. There's people that are trying to make money on it. There's people that are actually doing and performing the board. There's people that are assisting doing those things. I would say there's all different degrees of involvement, right? Whether the cloak is at someone's foot or they're the ones picking up the instrument to make it happen. You could say people are complicit and there's very real blood on people's hands that is very serious before God. But what's stunning to me is you look at Saul and you say, I don't know how you live with yourself. Look how much blood is on your hands. And yet you go, this story is going to play out. Like this story is not over yet. And what's so moving to me is that this Saul, and I have to steal a little bit of thunder from an upcoming sermon, but this Saul is going to be radically transformed by meeting the same Christ, the same Christ that he watched Stephen die for. And it's going to so radically transform his heart that he's going to go from hunting down Christians to being hunted by persecutors. 
his life is going to dramatically change. And you could say, how could he ever stand? Like, how could he ever face this and face himself and face God? Well, for Paul, I'll say Paul now, um, for him, he was able to say, um, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In this life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul, even him, found a new identity in Jesus Christ. He found that in Jesus Christ, there was blood. There was blood that could make up for all the blood that he had shed. There was innocent blood that was sicker than all the blood that he had shed combined. That it was enough to cover all of his sins. In all the ways he was complicit, in all the ways he took the lead. And Paul never got over this. You just read over and over again in the New Testament. He can't help but talk about what Jesus has done for him. And he knew that he didn't deserve to be an apostle. He didn't deserve anything but hell. And yet, this is one of his conclusions. Even though he saw himself as the, as the foremost, the chief of sinners, listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16. He says, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Christ Jesus might display Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him. In other words, Paul's saying, I'm fully aware of what I did, and I could never stand before God if it wasn't for the blood of Jesus Christ shed for me. And so he was able to get up in Christ. And it's incredible. Like, pour himself out to restore the dignity of human life after that, for the entire rest of his life. And he wasn't trying to earn anything. It was just because he was so touched by the grace of God. And part of his life and Jesus saving him, we're told in the inspired text, was to make sure that anybody who thinks they're beyond the saving grasp of Jesus Christ would know that if Paul wasn't beyond the saving grasp of Jesus Christ, then you are not beyond the saving grasp of Jesus Christ. For all those who put their faith in him. This is a stunning, stunning reversal that we're going to see. And I'm looking forward to seeing it unfold all the more as we walk through this text. But for now, we get these hints of who Saul is. And it's kind of like um, the opening scene of a movie. You've watched movies where there's this kind of this random little snippet at the beginning. And you're like, I don't know what this has to do with anything. But you know from watching enough movies, you go, Ah, I meant, I'm being introduced to something here. Something's being foreshadowed. I just make mental note of it, right? That's what's being happened in this text. That's what's happening in this text. Huh, the garments going at this young man named Saul's feet. Like, what does this have to do with anything? There's going to be a lot to do with it as we watch the story unfold. So hang on for it. But I think, you know, as we covered these couple paragraphs here, we step back and I think there's a principle that God wants to press upon our minds, or you could say an expectation that God wants us to have as his people. And I want to tease that out for us a little bit. And this is the expectation. We need to expect saints to be stoned and scattered. This needs to be just a baseline assumption in the Christian life. We need to expect saints to be stoned and scattered. This is going to be a thing. So let me just unpack this expectation a little bit that we're meant to have. We should expect, for example, 
people not to want to hear the truth about their hearts. Right? They didn't respond well to Stephen's sermon. Do you think they're always going to respond well to yours? We need to expect people to not want to hear truth that is going to expose. We should also expect, under this head, expect various degrees of persecution. Right? So you have Stephen on a more ultimate, to a more ultimate degree, paying the final price, you know, for his faith in Christ and martyrdom. But then you have a lot of variations in between. You have people being kicked out of Jerusalem, okay, leaving their homes. Uh, you have people losing jobs. You have children suffering. You have all kinds of different forms of persecution that can be endured. It could just look like mocking. It could look like ostracism. It could be like not being invited to something that you would have normally been invited to, right? Or inviting people and having them not come, right? Persecution can take a lot of different forms. There's a lot of different degrees of persecution. But what I want to say here is that we need to expect it, and I don't want to sugarcoat it at all. Persecution can be painful, even in the smaller degrees. Imagine if you were in those homes that Saul was ravaging. I mean, this is horrific. And we need to have a really realistic view of persecution in the Christian life. And I think too, you know, Daniel and Sam, I just want to say this directly. Where are you guys? Not in the, there you go. You're like a couple rows back from usual. Like, you know, you guys, you guys could be on the field in a fairly short time. And I'm just thinking how important it is to just hear a text after text like text like this because of the things that you will likely have to endure. We don't know, we don't know to what degree, but I think we can say for sure you're going to experience persecution as you go. And may this fortify you. May God just really burn this expectation on your minds and hearts as you prepare, even as we're wanting all of us to adopt this expectation. And remember the words that Paul said to young Timothy, right? Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Or Jesus said in John 15, 20, remember his words that he said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And then he said in another chapter later, John 16, 33, I've said these things to you. Like I've told you. I've, I've tried to impress this expectation of persecution and suffering upon you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So, as I close out this expectation, I just want to say this. Don't expect, don't expect to be faithful in big things if you're not faithful in little things. Like, don't expect to be able to stand up where Stephen did if you're not being willing to stand up in your workplace. We have to be faithful in the small ways. It's the best way to prepare for bigger things that God will have us face. And so I want to just exhort us, don't make your life about avoiding pain and persecution. Don't make your life about avoiding pain and persecution. Expect it. Make your life about doing what God wants you to do, no matter what the cost is. This is the way the Lord wants you to live. I mean, if we can't learn to love an enemy has, who has slighted us in some small way, how are we ever going to be able to stand up when people are trying to kill us 
and actually look lovingly upon them and want them to find redemption in Christ, like Stephen did. That doesn't happen out of nowhere. That happens from submitting ourselves over and over again, crying out to God to change our hearts. So do you have bitterness toward an enemy right now? Pray for your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Ask God to give you a mini victory, right? For someone who is wronging you in some way as a way of preparing for who knows what God will have for for you. Now, the narrative picks up in verse 4 of chapter 8. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for the unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So as they went out, um, we see that the church, Stephen Stone, the church is scattered. But what we also need to see is when they were scattered, they brought the word of God with them. They brought the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. You can kind of think about it this way. It's like they got one thing to grab before they leave Jerusalem and they got this bag of seeds on their hip. And they're like, all right, let's go. You know, they're leaving Jerusalem and they're going to scatter seeds along the way. That's what's being said here and highlighted in verses four and following is that now that they were scattered, they went about preaching the word. How providential our fighter verse for today, right? They went about preaching the word. They went about bearing good news. Oh, the beautiful feet of those who left Jerusalem. And what we need to see here is that these are ordinary Christians spreading the word. It's very important because in the last section, it said that they were scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. See, the apostles are still in Jerusalem, and I don't know exactly why that is. Some people will say it's because maybe the persecution broke out against mainly Hellenistic Jews, people who were Greek-speaking like Stephen, and so that's why they left. And since the uh, since the apostles were not Greek-speaking but Hebrew-speaking, they would have been able to stay in Jerusalem. Or it could have just been because that's where the, the heart of the persecution was, and there was a church there, and some were still there, and so they felt the need to stay there and shepherd the flock through the heart of the persecution that was going on. We don't know for sure, but we do, what we do know is it wasn't the apostles that were initially scattered. These were everyday Christians preaching the word. This text has stood out to me for years. It's just to see, it's not just the apostles. It's the church. It's the people of God fulfilling the great commission, fulfilling the marching orders that Jesus gave to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And so it's all these ordinary Christians doing it. And Stephen is particularly highlighted. Stephen was one of the deacons, right, like uh, Stephen was. And he's out preaching the word, and he has his eyes set on Samaria. So he goes into the city and starts preaching Christ. And it's so beautiful because it was like this, the ground was readied. Like God made people attentive to want to hear. It's like they were drinking it up. And the Samaritans, you know, they're not the most popular people on the planet, right? The Samaritans, they're like half Jew, half Gentile. So much so that the Jews don't really like them and the Gentiles don't really like them. And no one really wants to travel through their place except for Jesus. 
Remember how he met the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and gave her living water, something that could actually satisfy her? Turning, gave him himself, right? Jesus, in a sense, already paved the way to Samaria. And now Philip is walking along that road, glad to preach the good tidings there. And they are receiving it. And like Lydia in chapter 16, God opens her heart to listen and pay attention to what is said. And that's what God's doing with this great, um, you know, host of people in, in Samaria. And then there's this, this detail. I love it in verse eight. So there was much joy in that city. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. But I want to press in in closing this, this second expectation, right? So we're meant to expect saints to be stoned and scattered, right? Expect persecution to come in the Christian life, right? The second expectation that needs to be etched on our memory is that, that we are meant to expect seeds to spread and sprout, right? On the heels of persecution, we are meant to expect seeds to spread and to sprout. And so let me unpack this and apply this expectation for us. We should expect God to take what the enemy meant for evil and turn it for good. We should expect God to take persecution and to bring blessing out of it. And this is exactly what we see him doing. I'm pretty confident that we wouldn't be in church today if the church in Jerusalem wasn't knocked out of the nest. There's this saying, my kids, uh, in the, in their schooling, they do this timeline. It's a history timeline. Uh, it takes like 20 minutes to recite. It's from creation to modern day. And one of my favorite phrases in the entire timeline is this phrase. It gets to the very point of history that we're looking at right now. And it says, persecution spreads the gospel. And they sing it. It's just beautiful. Persecution spreads the gospel. Hence the title of the sermon. This is such an important thing that we're meant to see here. We're meant to see that yes, God uses persecution to spread the gospel. We can see this throughout church history. This is such a common thread throughout church history. In fact, oftentimes when there's no persecution, it ends up being some of the flattest times for the church. But when there is persecution, there's often a purification that comes in the hearts of the people of God. And it has a way of advancing the gospel. And one of the examples, a modern day example that came immediately to mind was what God did in China. I don't know if you're really familiar with that. And I want to read, I want to read someone's account of it. Okay. And so he uses the phrase, the wind increases the flame. So you have per, the wind of persecution increasing, increasing the flame of the gospel. Right. And so he, highlights what happened in China this way. Remember, persecution spreads the gospel. That's the point. An instructive modern parallel here, okay? What happened in 1949 in China when the national government was defeated by the communists? 637 China inland mission missionaries were kicked out of the country. It seemed like a total disaster in terms of the mission that was meant to be accomplished there in China. I mean, you imagine you invest your entire life there as a missionary and then boom, you're gone. So persecution breaks out, kicks all the missionaries out of there. And it says this, yet within four years, 286 of them, the missionaries, had been redeployed in Southeast Asia and Japan. Okay. Their new nest, they knocked out of it. New spot to spread seeds, right? 
But it says, while the national Christians in China, even under severe persecution, began to multiply and now total 30 or 40 times the number they were when the missionaries left. I mean, right now it's millions of Chinese people know Jesus. Like, so persecution came in. It forced this infant church in China to stand on its own two feet and to follow Christ without the crutch of foreign missionaries. And they stood up under it. Now, like a lot of churches in a lot of places where the gospel just went, it needs a lot of work, right? Um, and building upon that foundation. But it was incredible to think lockdown for all these. I mean, they were imprisoning pastors and trying to move them away from the location that they were ministering, away from their flock. And they just gave them a new mission field. They just started preaching the gospel over there. And it was just spread like wild. But it so backfired. This is glorious. Persecution spreads the gospel. We should expect seeds to spread and we should expect them to sprout. And because that's how God works. He used persecution to spread the gospel. They tried to put a basket over the light, but it burnt a hole through the basket. You cannot cover these things up ultimately. There's this great saying in church history that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's a perfect Case in point here. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And this could be applied more broadly too. That God uses even the worst possible circumstances to advance his gospel, to advance his purposes. So it's not just persecution. It's all kinds of suffering, all kinds of difficulty. What are you going through? If you're a child of God, I can guarantee you that God has a Christ-exalting purpose in your suffering. I can say that because it says God works out all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And one of the greatest goods that could ever happen is for us to be more fully conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. If you want that more than anything else, more than anything else, then your present suffering and pain is not an obstacle. It's actually an opportunity to become more like Jesus Christ, which is going to position you strategically to help advance this kingdom under this head too, we want to expect God to use ordinary people to spread these seeds. I want you, I want you to get this church. God wants to use ordinary people to spread his seeds. So yes, pastors, missionaries are often on the front lines of a lot of these things, but primarily God wants to use his church as a whole to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. God spread these things through ordinary believers, not just the apostles. So I want to ask you this question. If you were to be kicked out of the nest of FBC today by persecution, how much seed would be in your pouch? How ready would you be to go start spreading those gospel seeds? And this is why we gather every single week as a church. We, in a sense, get to practice. We gather, then we scatter. We gather, then we scatter. We gather, then we scatter. Right now, we're doing it voluntarily. That could change. That scattering, that voluntary scattering could change into an involuntary scattering. And my burden is, is that every single one of us would be equipped with the gospel of Jesus Christ, equipped with the word of God to be able to generously and even joyfully scatter these seeds. And it's fitting to say joyfully because look at how verse 8 ends. So there was much joy in that city. You go back to chapter 7, verse 50, it says, And they cast him, Stephen, out of the city. Well, they cast him out of the city 
And the saints were scattered out of Jerusalem, out of that city, so that in another city, joy could sprout. Joy in Jesus Christ. Persecution spreads the gospel. It's meant to lead to more and more joy. I just think of this phrase that um, friends, missionary friends of mine and Karin's that, that died some years back. You've talked, I've talked about it before, the Palace family. They were going for their last missionary training. They died. Their whole family died in a car accident. It was just absolutely horrific. Um, but they had this, this phrase that was just gripping them is what was guiding them as they wanted. They were living for the joy of Japan. That was their phrase. They were going to Japan and they had this slogan, the joy of Japan. They wanted Japanese people to find joy in Jesus Christ. They wanted them to hear this good news in a place where less than 1% of people believe in the gospel. And that was their heart. And you'd say, how could that happen? I mean, this really promising young godly family ready to give it all for Christ. And then to be snuffed out like that. That can testify. Do you know that God has raised up more missionaries in their stead? Not just to Japan, but in other places by their example. Why? Because they were being obedient and faithful in just the small things. They sold everything to go. They didn't know that they weren't packing their bags for Japan. They were packing their bags for heaven. And I can guarantee you that someone was waiting with open arms, ready to receive his people. You know, this whole process of spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's painful. It's painful. That's why in Psalm 126.6 it says, He who goes out weeping, bearing his seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing sheaves with him. These two expectations are really important, beloved. We are to expect saints to be stoned and scattered. We are to expect persecution. And we are to expect seeds to spread and to sprout. That God's going to use persecution to spread the gospel. And right now, if you think about it, the church is just scattered all over the globe right now. There's people that were just in one place and because of persecution, they're scattered and it just feels kind of fragmented. It's hard sometimes just to even believe that we're a part of so much of a greater whole when people are so scattered. But the time is coming very soon when Christ comes, the Son of Man comes to gather all of his people in from all the nations, all those who have repented and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to be ready for that day. Jesus stands ready to greet his faithful church. And we get to look forward to his welcome because we don't have a dark cloud over our heads. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that we can be confident that not one bit of pain in our lives will be wasted. We're so thankful, Lord, that you use and you recycle every painful thing in our lives to bring us gain to make us more like your son, Jesus, to fit us more, to work with you, carrying out the great commission. Lord, I thank you that each saint within my hearing could know confidently that their present pain is being used by you to advance a greater purpose. Give them that confidence, Lord. 
give them strength to endure whatever they must endure. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who are fortified with biblical expectations about persecution and how you use persecution. Lord, I pray that whatever degree of persecution we experience here, I pray that whatever we do, we would not avoid pain and persecution. Pray that we wouldn't make our lives about avoidance. We would make our lives about following you wherever you call us, no matter the cost. Lord, I pray that you would continue to prepare Daniel and Sam as we seek to send them out in a manner worthy of the Lord. And God, I pray that you would even raise up more to go with them or to other places. And I pray as you do it, that you'd be working in them hearts like Stephen's that bleed with the Savior's love. God, I pray that you'd help each of us in our own small ways to know that you want to use ordinary Christians to spread your gospel. Cement that in each of our minds and hearts that we would have that conviction, Lord, that you would use us. I pray, I pray that the next time we do baptisms, Lord, there would be people that would be being baptized because they were converted because of an ordinary Christian at FBC shared the gospel with them. Have mercy, Lord. Grant it. Give your church the motivation that we need and help us to ache with Paul to realize that it's all those who call on the name of the Lord that will be saved. But Lord, how will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how will they believe and they've never heard? And how will they hear unless someone's sent? And how will they be sent? Or how, without a preacher? And how will the preacher come unless they're sent? Lord, I thank you that you bring good news to us. Help us to bring it to others so that there be joy in more cities. In Jesus' name, amen.